don't wanna be a starving artist. I don't wanna be a starving artist. I just want to find a way to live. Hello, I'm Anna Eastley, and welcome to the very first episode of Starving Artist. This podcast is about art, money, and how we are going to make those things work together. The intersection of art and money is not really something that's talked about in great detail. It's it's kind of taboo, weird, it's definitely impolite, and that's exactly where I like to hang out. I started this podcast so I had an excuse, really, to ask a bunch of creatives that I really admired really nosy questions about their financial situations. Questions that I definitely couldn't ask otherwise. And I recorded it so that then I could kind of make the resource that I wish that I had access to. For this very first episode, I wanted to start with the quintessential story of The Starving Artist. Tom Dickens is a Melbourne-based musician, publicist. He's also a creative producer. This episode was recorded in 2016, and it was recorded at the Butterfly Club, which is actually a really quite famous venue in Melbourne. It's where people like Tim Minchin got their start, but it's also where there's a lot of traffic. So there's a little bit of alarm sounding in the background and some other weird sounds because we're doing it on the fly. Just wanted to let you know so you didn't think those sounds were happening in your actual life. Now, five years prior to this interview, Tom did something that many people would find stupid or brave or both. Following the advice of his friend Amanda Palmer, he decided to fuck plan B. He quit his job and without any savings, he tried to live off of his art. He didn't have a plan and and he didn't really have much of an idea of how it would work out, but he did have a lot of enthusiasm and he had a lot of resourcefulness. In this episode, you'll hear him talk about what worked, what didn't work, and also whether he'll ever be able to buy a house. So here it is, and here we go. Tom Dickens, we are at the Butterfly Club. We are recording right before you're about to go on your first vacation in five years. Five years. Which is, which is kind of timely because we're here to talk about a decision that you made five years ago. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> <laughs> so can you first just tell me who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. My name is Tom Dickens. I am a singer-songwriter and performer and also a publicist, and I also produce events in arts festivals. I thought that we could start actually by going back and listening to a speech that you made in 2011. Yeah, sure. So in 2011, would you want to tell the story? Yeah, sure. I'm glad that you gave me the year because all of the details are fuzzy. But in 2011, I quit my nine-to-five day job to pursue my career in the arts. I'd been spending quite a bit of time on the road touring and, and playing shows around Australia and in Europe. And this was kind of the decision moment where I realized that if I wanted to commit to this career in the arts, I really needed to dedicate more time to it. And so I quit my job and threw a massive party to announce quitting my job. 
And the party was called the Fuck Plan B Party. That's right. Which was inspired by an email from your friend Amanda Palmer. Yeah, that's right. So I'd been kind of tossing up for a while how long I could live this this dual life of nine to five office life with constantly being on the road and needing to be at soundcheck during times I should be meeting people in, in the office. And so I was asking a few people for advice and Amanda has been a mentor for my career for quite some time. And she basically sent me a three-line email that was like, Quit your job, fuck plan B, do what you love, something like that. <laughs> it says on your on the Wikipedia page for the Jane Austen argument, which is your band with Jen Kingwell, jettison the job, fuck plan B, I'll support you in any way I can. That's correct. That's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> I love that Wikipedia knows my own history better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe just remembers it better. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of an amazing email to receive. And it's interesting looking at how you and Amanda have done stuff because you've you've really gone about your careers in some similar ways in terms of how you engage with your audience. and Yeah, I think that she was a real sort of um, trailblazer in, in how to do DIY indie arts. And obviously the career that she had leading up to where she is now, she started from a very different place than I did. But as I was starting my music career, she really basically did help me in any way that she could. So we actually did our first show in Melbourne together was at the Butterfly Club when it was still in South Melbourne. It was a pyjama party and it was, I think, announced via Twitter or via her email campaign and 50 people who wrote in with some answer to some question, got free tickets to see this show. And we basically took over the Butterfly Club and played piano into the late night. And that sort of started a long history of recording and playing together. Yeah, because you guys have done tours around Australia together and around the US together. Yeah, that's right. It's a lovely kind of circus friendship. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to go back in time to 2011. The day that you quit your job, which was also your birthday? Yes. And you threw this big fuck plan B party and you did a gig with Jane Austen Argument and you recorded it and you released it and you released the speech that you made about what you were thinking when you quit your job. Which I I have not heard this in a very long time. (laughs) (laughs) Which was why I thought it might be good to play it now. Yeah, I'm intrigued. See what young me has to say. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's see. Obviously, making a decision um, like the decision that I've made um, and making it so publicly and sharing it with people, um, people ask why and where it came from. And so I just wrote a a few words about why that is and why I think it's important. I studied acting at university and we were constantly told that only 5% of us would succeed, that... Many of, them will, many of us will ultimately fail. And this was meant to instill within us a working ethic and an understanding of just how hard this road that we were walking would be, but there was never any reference to where that road could ultimately lead us. I understand why they told us this. Disappointment is hard, but the advice is flawed. It didn't account for a wider definition of success. It didn't inspire us to try. It was a self-fulfilling promise that meant many of us escaped success by not even believing that it was possible. And now it's taken a few years to unlearn these lessons, to look at my own idea of success, to to figure out how hard I'm willing to try and how much I'm willing to risk. And I'm very, very ultimately aware that it could fail spectacularly, but I'm a fan of spectacle. But what I'd like to do and um, what I hope that I can continue to do is um, challenge 
all of us and myself and, and you look for whatever makes you happy. What couldn't you live without doing? What do you do in your spare time that makes you smile and are you doing it enough? And if not, why? <laughs> Challenge the things that hold you back and build them into your life in a meaningful way. Build them into your first plan. Make them the only way that you can succeed because there's no time for plan B. Fuck it. How is it listening back to that five years on? Oh, it's so weird. <laughs> it's, it's great, though. Like, it's really nice to have this document and a little window into where my mind was because the last five years have been incredibly varied and incredibly challenging and I've ended up somewhere probably fairly different to where that Tom thought that he would end up. Where did that Tom think that he would end up? Oh, world domination. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I think... That was at a point in my life, we'd done quite a bit of touring, but I hadn't sort of really investigated what it looks like to try and make a full-time career in the arts and what that looks like outside of festival times where, you know, you're doing sh a million shows and spots every day. And now I, I feel like I have lived a little bit more of that life. <laughs> you know what's interesting? I made a decision like that about a year ago. I got offered to do a job. Anyway, big opportunity to go do a normal job. And I was like, oh, I've just started earning some money doing art stuff. So I'm going to do that. And I did not look at the financials mm. very well. And I'm really glad because if I had of, <laughs> I would not have decided to turn it down. And I think that sometimes that's kind of a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I think sometimes the things we don't know are very usefully kept hidden for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was quite aware plunging into self-employment of all of the parachutes that were there that I was basically cutting the strings too. <laughs> but um Wait on, what were the parachutes you were cutting uh, the strings like to? Oh, like a steady salary, annual leave, sick leave, being paid when you're sick. That's amazing. <laughs> that doesn't happen when you're self-employed. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, this kind of constancy and surety of supply of finances, that's not something that happens in self-employment. I was I was passingly aware of that, but I think I was probably also a little optimistic about how easily I would subsidize that lost income with art money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah because I think that listening to that firstly I think that you say some amazing things and the bit where you say what they told you didn't account for a wider definition of success it didn't inspire you to try and it was a self-fulfilling prophecy that meant many of us escaped success by not even believing it was possible yeah that is so on the money <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I I stand by that part of the statement definitely <laughs> And it's interesting in the work that I do now because while I'm still performing and still writing and still touring, I also work helping other artists basically find their audiences through publicity and through helping with event management and production. And often we sort of will start our first production meetings by asking, you know, what does success look like to you? What does it mean to you? If this were to go well, what does that look like? And now how do we make a roadmap to helping you get to whatever that looks like? Does that make sense? Absolutely. It's another thing that I liked about the speech that you made, which was that they were talking about a really narrow definition of success. Mm. And you were interested in a wider 
understanding of what success means. Yes. Do you think that your idea of what success means has changed in the last five years? Yeah, I'd say so. I think back then, still my my concept of what a successful career would look like would have been pretty much being on the road all the time, touring, playing as many shows as possible, being in front of audiences as much as possible, and basically all of my income coming from performance. And while I love performing and I love touring, I really like being at home as well. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I really enjoy the parts of being an independent musician that aren't on stage. And so I think my definition of success now looks a little bit more akin to to the things that I'm driving for now, which is basically straddling a joint career of both performing and helping other people, other performers build their own business. Yeah, yeah. I want to get to what you do now, but first I want to ask you, can you walk us through, you quit your job and then what did you do? Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) So I quit the job at RMIT Student Union and through the party and then I also wrote a cabaret show also called Fuck Plan B, which was presented at the Butterfly Club where we are now, except when this was in South Melbourne, not in the centre of the city. That was basically a storytelling show of, I, I guess, looking at success, looking at what my perception around success was and all of the obstacles and the people that had said no and the constant kind of having to subvert what I'd been told was what is a successful artist's career. So did that show... Then fairly shortly after that, the Jane Austen argument went on tour. We toured to uh, Edinburgh and did a ridiculously intense 60 performances in 20 days in Edinburgh. Then went on tour with Amanda Palmer around London and Amsterdam. And we also did a few shows in Berlin. Then we flew to Seattle to record our first album as the Jane Austen argument. That tour finished. We went back on the road with Amanda Palmer and Neil Gaiman. They did a tour, which was... An evening with Amanda Palmer and Neil Gaiman. That's right. And so we went on the tour, which was one of the most enjoyable tours of my life. We're playing these giant theatres of 1,500 to 2,000 people every night and meeting this glorious group of humans. And then we got to Canada in that tour. Oh, my God. What happened in Canada? Well, it was not so much what happened in Canada as what happened at the border of Canada back into Seattle. Oh, that's right. Even though I'd I'd spent inordinate amounts of time talking to the US consulate while we were on tour, making sure that my visa was correct, we had some overzealous border officials who suddenly decided that some subclause of visa law meant that I was not on the correct visa, that I couldn't uh, re-enter the States and that I couldn't continue the rest of the tour dates. So my wife, uh, then fiancé, was with me at the time and she had to basically take all my stuff back over the line and stay with the tour bus. I went back to Canada, literally had to talk myself onto (laughs) a a tourist bus full of Chinese tourists that were going from the Canadian border because it was like 10 o'clock at night. So I talked myself onto this bus back to Vancouver. They dropped me off and I realised that we were across the road from the hotel where we'd stayed on tour. Mm. So I walked back across the road because I knew I at least could get onto the Wi-Fi and, and try and talk to the tour manager and see what the hell I do. <laughs> and just as I got onto the Wi-Fi and got to the front of the queue, I got an email saying, hey, we booked you back into the hotel where you were last night. I was like, thank ah! God. So I got to check in. Anyway, never. I've never been back to the States since then. <laughs> I flew from Canada via China back to Australia. Wow. (laughs) And between launching the Jane Austen Argument album, recording a few solo things, and basically living this patchwork quilt of figuring out how to make rent each month, eventually got to the point where my wife and I took all of these skills from from touring and from publicity and all of the mistakes that we'd made and turned it into a business called Crowded, which is basically what I do when I'm not on stage is helping other artists through that. But before you did that... 
You had some pretty interesting experiments in how to make rent each month. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't remember in which order they happened, but it was one month fairly shortly after we'd gotten back from tour where I was just like, oh my God, this is the direct consequence of quitting my job and, and trying to be an artist. I have no money and rent is due like last week. <laughs> so I was walking around Brunswick trying to figure out how the hell we were going to pull it together and decided to put together a virtual garage sale. So we did a photo shoot of me modeling all of these items of clothing from tour and picking up random items and just trying to sell them on the internet, including there was a white vinegar bottle that I signed and just put it up as a joke. Like, <laughs> you can buy this signed vinegar bottle. <laughs> <laughs> which someone did buy and basically do you know how much they bought it for i think it ended up going for like 20 bucks <laughs> that's actually pretty good but like sold my first guitar sold all of this stuff and with the support mainly of the fan base of our music managed to make that month's rent and then for the following month's rent i was in a similar predicament so decided to spend five days before rent was due recording an ep of solo material and released that very much just before christmas and put it online and did a webcast to launch it into the world and and again the sales from that ep paid the rent for that month so wow you know it, they were desperate times calling for desperate measures but creative solutions ended up being a lot more enjoyable and authentic than crawling back to my office and asking for my job back <laughs> <laughs> who are you th who are you inspired by when you were kind of trying that stuff out Look, I mean, we've spoken about Amanda. She's been a very clear example of someone who basically takes the analogy of crowd surfing where you fall and, and expect and hope that the crowd will catch you. And she's taken that into a digital realm pretty successfully. So that's definitely been an inspiration. But really, to be honest, the connections that I built with people while touring and we would sort of spend two hours after every show signing and, and meeting everyone and sort of telling stories. And we also did Twitter gigs. We called them Twitniks where basically we'd say, we're going to be in this park, come down, we'll play songs and we'll all drink together. Those relationships and how much they meant to both sides of that relationship was probably the core inspiration for going, you know what, I'm just going to ask. <laughs> I'm going to ask if it's possible and, you know, I'm going to dive out and hope that someone catches me and so far it's worked. <laughs> Can I ask, did you have savings at the time? Oh God, no. Wow. I've never had savings. I'm no good at savings. <laughs> I'm quite good at debt. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but no one would have extended a line of credit to me at that point either. So it really was, I have to find a solution. What skills do I wow. have? I can sing songs. I can, I can internet. <laughs> I think there's that thing also, like when you're put in that bind, you become really resourceful. Yeah, I, well, some people do. I'm lucky that I'm one of them. <laughs> but realistically, I think that, that it comes back to what I was just saying. The skill set that I have is not a particularly useful one. It's not something that people like need it's not an essential service <laughs> but my skill set that I do have is that I'm creative so I think finding creative solutions to real you know grown-up adult problems has been basically the cornerstone of my life for the last five years yeah that's a really good point so can you talk a little bit about what you do now yeah sure so I mentioned briefly that the business that my wife and I set up is called Crowded. That was something that we did through the NICE course, which is the new incentive enterprise scheme, basically a government service that helps people with business ideas learn business skills to make them a reality. 
Did you actually find the stuff? So I have a number of friends who have done that course and yeah. who didn't find the business side of it really useful. Um, it was an interesting thing. We were very fortunate in that our teacher that we had was exceptional. She was really, really useful and really understood the problems that face creative people in entering business because she was a creative person herself. Um, that helps. The financial side, I, I didn't really, I probably should have taken more away from. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but definitely the business plan development stuff was really helpful. But so we basically started the NICE scheme to find a way to support both my performance career, but also our weird sort of patchwork quilt of, of skills between publicity, graphic design, web design and events basically sort of threw all of our skills at a business plan and the business that emerged probably didn't really find its feet for a couple of years until we realized, okay, let's crystallize this into three main tiers, which are events, publicity and design. And those are the three things that we focus on now. And what kind of artists do you work with? So my major client is the Butterfly Club. It's a hilarious sort of 360 <laughs> journey that I now work. Uh, they give me an office here, which means that I work with every producer that comes through here to help them really dig into what the marketing identity of a show is, I think, which probably actually warrants a little explanation. There's usually a huge difference between what creatively drives someone to do something and what might inspire a complete stranger who's reading about it on the internet to decide it's worth parting money for. <laughs> and so we call that the marketing identity of a show. And we spend a bit of time basically saying, okay, you talk about all of the creative things. That's great. Let's put it on stage. That's awesome. Now let's pretend we're not you <laughs> and start to figure out why it would be attractive to anybody else. Yeah, which is really useful skills. And it's something that by the nature of being a creator of anything, you can't be that outside eye and decide what it looks like to someone else. My colleague Simone often says, if you could describe a whole show in a 50 word blurb, then there'd be no reason to do the show. <laughs> so when you've spent you know months of your time creating, whether it's a show or a piece of music or a, a visual artwork, you're the least qualified person to try and crystallize why it's attractive to someone else. <laughs> My God, that's such a beautiful idea. No I wonder I need so many people to tell me what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because I, by benefit of working here, I work with over 200 productions every year. And then there's other stuff that crowded produces. So we end up working between 300 and 400 artists every year. When it comes to selling my own work still, I have not an idea. I need someone else to be the me of that situation. Who is the you of that situation? Uh, well, look, Ange, my wife is usually really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> um, but usually it's about basically asking people to turn the tables and say, all right, I've helped you out with your stuff can you basically help me be my sounding board tell me why people like listening to my sad sad music <laughs> when people come to you and you work with them you ask them like what would success look like for this project mm. what are people mostly looking for maybe uh, this is easiest to answer by elimination <laughs> the thing that i can't help anybody ever realize is the feeling of creative fulfillment like i i can't help a performer find that golden feeling from doing a great show and connecting with people. That's something that only they can do or only they and their creative team can do. So I guess a lot of the time people are basically trying to figure out how to find an audience or how to convince their audience that this show is a good idea. And that's the best way that I can help is to help them realize success in that way. Or not always success. Sometimes it's like, well, you tried to communicate with the audience in this way before, it didn't work. So this time, let's just try a completely different tactic, a different set of, you know, a different language that's used to describe things. Does that make sense? I feel like I'm waffling a little. <laughs> no, 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 that makes sense. I suppose I was wondering, like, 
because you work with so many productions, I was like, when you ask people, what does success look like to you? To me, I'm like, I figure most people would say not losing money. Yeah, I feel like that's like 50% a... would be saying that. Yeah, and I guess the other 50 are people who would basically, I, I want to put this thing on stage and see whether it has a life, which is absolutely valid as well. But I guess looking at things with a bit of a commercial eye, the best way of finding out whether something works is to still do it in front of a sold out crowd. <laughs> Absolutely. I agree. They're not mutually exclusive. You you can both not lose money and test out your creative work on a stage. I find it really fascinating that this decision in 2011 to quit your job, Mm. I think previous to that you were already experimenting with how to connect with your audience, how to do things in, I suppose, a different way. Mm. How do you finance your creative output, all that kind of stuff. But I feel like the process of quitting your job put you in this situation where you learned a bunch of skills oh, yeah. a lot more quickly. <laughs> yeah, big time. Which now directly impacts on the work that you do now. Yeah, and I think it's interesting a lot of the time, I think, particularly when artists are coming into the Butterfly Club or working with Crowded for the first time, they're used to dealing with the same bookers or venue managers or publicists that I've dealt with in the rest of my career, people who are not necessarily creatively engaged in the outcomes of the work. They're basically, you're there to help bring people to drink at their bar or people (laughs) to help make them look good in a festival program or or whatever it is and so I think it's actually it seems to be quite valuable to people that they can come into a venue and and talk to a group of people not just myself who understand what it is to put together a show who understand what it is to decide two nights before your opening night that you want to can the entire script and start again and and to do that. (laughs) Wait and have you done that? Oh yeah. Oh my god. (laughs) Actually, Fuck Plan B was rewritten in three nights before the show first opened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My God. Yeah, it was. it's actually funny. I know we're sort of jumping all over the shop, but basically when Fuck Plan B was just about to come on the cabaret show, there's a huge Twitter explosion. Amanda had tweeted out a bunch of stuff about Fuck Plan B, whether it was by design or by honest omission, a lot of people were feeling really quite affronted by this concept of well, if you don't quit your job, does that mean you're not a successful artist or does that mean you're not dedicating your life to creativity, which is kind of the opposite of everything that I was I was sort of like, no, this is the thing that I'm doing. <laughs> this is my experiment. I'm not saying that everyone should do it. In fact, come back to me in five years. I'll let you know whether it was a good idea. <laughs> but I'd recently changed email addresses from my RMIT one to one that was um, associated with the Jan Austen argument back in the day and I hadn't completed my auto forwards correctly and two days before Fuck Plan B was due to open, as I just decided to rip up the script and start again, I saw an email from nine days prior from Baz Luhrmann's people asking me to audition for The Great Gatsby. Oh my God. <laughs> and I'd missed the audition. You, oh my <laughs> and God. so I called them and I'm like, what can I do? What can I do? And they're like, oh, you can submit, you know, if you can film something, you can send it to us. And so instead of writing my show I reached out to a friend they came around and I filmed an audition in my lounge room while just behind the camera was my unwritten script for the show that was opening in two days time holy (laughs) fuck needless to say I didn't get the role (laughs) oh my god (laughs) yeah untimely opportunities it is but weirdly that whole process kind of ended up feeding in quite well to the script writing process and I ended up with a show I liked a lot better so (laughs) (laughs) I think I even mentioned the whole Baz Luhrmann thing in the show. (laughs) (laughs) So now, five years on, do you think it was a good idea? 
I'm really happy with where I am now. I know that doesn't fully answer your question, but I feel probably for the last year and a half, I've started to feel like I'm getting the balance that I've always wanted between the behind the scenes work and the helping other people work and still having time to write and produce my own work and tour my own work. So that's accompanied by, I still don't have any money. If I'd kept my job, I'd probably have a house <laughs> that I owned. <laughs> I'd probably have a whole bunch of material things that I don't have that I would really like to have. So was it a, a responsible choice fiscally? Fuck no. Has it led to a fulfilling life? Yes. Wow, that's such a good answer. <laughs> Thank you. Because it's funny because we laugh about like, yeah, if I didn't do that, I would have a house or whatever. And, you know, that's a common joke when, you know, creatives get together and they mm. talk about their situation. But that's also really scary. Oh, yeah. Right now for where I am in my life, I would like nothing better than to be able to ask a bank for money to go and buy a house. And maybe that's going to be something that's on the horizon sort of five years from now. But by, by sort of making this big statement, fuck plan B, I did fuck a lot of chances of that for a good long time. So if someone else was asking me whether it was a good idea, I think I'd both caution them against it and also say, if your heart's there and, and you've thought it through, jump. Jobs are there when you come back. I, I went back and did six months of cafe work and, and a little bit of working in a drive through bottle shop and I still don't see that as a failure or a setback. That was just necessary to keep on funding this creative career. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the road is hard, but I, I do still think that had I stayed in the same routine I was in or if I'd basically had to sort of not follow a lot of the creative desires that I had, then I'd probably be richer but also feel quite like I'd squandered my opportunity to try. Yeah. So I'm in this position right now where I'm deciding whether to quit my job mm. and fuck plan B. So what would you say to, I mean, obviously you'd probably ask me a bunch more questions about yeah. this. <laughs> yeah. So let's just pretend you have asked me a bunch more questions about this and I've been like, yeah, I actually have some savings or blah, blah, blah. I'm in a different situation. I have a Patreon and yeah. that's a thing that exists now and didn't exist five years ago. What would you tell me? It's kind of hard to answer that question without asking all of the questions <laughs> in between. I don't think that you can kind of actually jump ahead that far. <laughs> but I would like to take a moment because um, you've mentioned Patreon. Uh, I feel like one thing that I've not acknowledged at all while we've been talking today is the immense support of people through crowdfunding and through these yeah. fan initiatives. They are the people that have made my career possible and have largely forgiven me for the mistakes and the, the trials and tribulations along the way. So that's really important to acknowledge. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel I know what you I know what you mean. <laughs> I think that life is short. I think that mistakes are better when you own up to them. So if you go through this whole thing and decide to quit your job and do the rest of your things and it ends up being a complete colossal failure, <laughs> however you analyze that, that's fine. Own the mistakes, let other people learn from them. That's kind of a bit of a mantra, I think, for me. <laughs> But I guess no one is going to die from you making the choice to follow your creative desires. <laughs> <laughs> like this, the stakes feel huge, but then they're, they're not life and death. So if you make a decision and you feel like it was the wrong one, you've always got time to, to turn around and make a different one. Like we moved to Woodend to record my solo album in 2013, I think. And 
it was really good while we were recording the album. The first six months, I loved living in this this little country town. And then the moment the album was finished, it got to winter and a few life setbacks happened. And I suddenly hated everything about that town and everything about the decisions that I'd made. So we just moved back, which just came back, got other jobs, worked our way back into it and sort of learnt from those mistakes. And now we've actually moved to the country again. <laughs> Different part of like the country. Like three weeks ago? Yeah, yeah. I think that piece of advice, you won't die, is actually kind of amazing. The other side of that is, and it depends on what kind of work you make, but if you're making work that connects with people and enriches their lives, potentially you're like giving life mm. in the process of committing yeah. to whatever you're putting out into the world. On another note, I was also thinking this the other day because I had to go get this is totally an overshare. I had to go get an IUD, like an intrauterine yeah. device. And I everyone told me it was going to be so painful. And on the way there, it was totally fine. But on the way there, I was thinking to myself, you will not die. Yeah. No matter what happens, <laughs> you will not die. It may be very painful, but you will not die. Yeah. <laughs> very comforting. Yeah, I think we often fall prey to thinking the stakes are higher than they really are. The stakes of making any sort of big life decision in terms of career are biggest for you and the people that you're financially interdependent or codependent with. <laughs> the people you work with are then affected on the next tier down. The people who appreciate your work are then impacted even less so. So I think it's sometimes good to basically reanalyze what the stakes of a decision like that are. How much are you actually risking? And if that doesn't seem too life or death and you really want to do it, then I guess do it. <laughs> it's really nice to hear. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that your experiences. Is my pleasure. I feel like it's of utmost importance that anyone in the independent arts community <laughs> shares both their highs and their lows because that's share the, the lows. <laughs> yeah, share the, share the lows. But also, we were talking about this recently. Don't not share the highs either. We have this horrible tall poppy yeah. culture in Australia that seems to subscribe to the idea that if one person succeeds, there's somehow less success for everybody else to have access to. Whereas the reverse is true. If someone breaks through some ceiling, <laughs> some glass ceiling, then it only makes it more possible for other people to achieve their own versions of success, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that that's true, particularly if you look at someone like Amanda Palmer when she made like a million dollars on the Theatre is Evil album on Kickstarter. Yeah. And that's kind of like breaking some sort of ceiling in terms of how artists can be in the world yeah. and make their work. Totally. That's good for everyone. I don't see a downside of someone else succeeding. And even if someone's doing something very similar to what I want to do, if they succeed, then they've actually just sort of beaten down some of the things on the path. So it's easy to walk down that path yourself. Yeah. It's a really nice way of looking at it. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, thank you very much. Pleasure. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the very first episode of Starving Artist. In case you were sitting there wondering, did she quit her job? I did, actually. I like the idea that Amanda Palmer got Tom to quit his job and then Tom got me to quit my job. But that's not what happened. Actually, it's a much longer story than that. And if you're interested in listening to a much longer version of how that decision was made you can listen to the other podcast I do it's called being honest with my ex and it's basically the diary that I've been keeping with my ex-fiance for the past 15 months there's links to the specific episodes about the decision to quit my normal job and they're in the show notes for this episode which you can find at starvingartistpodcast.com and if you want to continue the conversation you can find starving artist on all the social media 
ask questions, leave comments, all that kind of stuff. And leave us a review on iTunes if you thought this podcast was useful. I want to say a massive thank you to the people who support me on Patreon. Patreon is kind of like a Kickstarter, but it's ongoing. And genuinely, this podcast would not have happened, or it may have taken a few more years without all the people who support me on Patreon. I'm really, really, genuinely, really grateful for that. This episode was edited by Lance Turnbull and Peter C. Hayward. That's all from me. Love and child-sized mandarins on Eastleigh.